listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week, the conversation starts with a filmmaker I am always happy to start with, Fassbender. Specifically, his serial drama, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. My guest is a regular on the show, critic Beatrice Loiza, who recently wrote a beautiful essay for a reverse shot symposium and contributes to the New York Times, the AV Club, and other publications. Beatrice's viewing leads us to two dramas with British star Dirk Bogard and two comedies by the great Albert Brooks. We also take the measure of studio blockbuster filmmaking with a couple of big movies from recent months, as well as the little-mentioned film Nobody. One quick reminder, if you like what you hear on The Last Thing I Saw, you can subscribe to my Substack to hear more. Currently available to subscribers only is a special episode with Manola Dargis, co-chief film critic at The Times. And now, without further ado, let's begin with Fassbender. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. For our latest episode about what people have been watching, uh, I'm very pleased to have a return guest, a stalwart of, of the program, Beatrice Loiza. Welcome, Beatrice. It sounds like we're going to be talking about a fairly lunatic range of films. Hello. Yes. I mean, I feel like my viewing always is comprised of these extremes of like kind of obscure art house on the one hand and then like sort of palette cleansers slash movies I could just watch while I'm eating that are like blockbuster trash. So maybe this conversation will reflect my movie watching habits very closely. (laughs) (laughs) This is somewhat of a ridiculous marker, but I, I am curious, do you end up watching about, I don't know, two or three movies a, a day at, the, at this stage? I can't, I, for me, the strange thing that happened during uh, the past year is that I'm probably actually watching fewer movies, I mean, during certain stretches um, than I did uh, before, I, I think just because of the general, what the world takes out of me on a daily basis but uh i don't know ideally it means one could watch more yes um i don't know i i guess i've been watching i always kind of watch like one to three movies a day and i feel like even before the pandemic that was my habit but i think just being at home all the time it's kind of more scattered throughout the day whereas before it was kind of compressed in the evenings <laughs> my moving watching is very schizophrenic like I'm looking at my my letterbox account which I do use to just kind of remember what I've been watching and <laughs> it is pretty absurd like I've been doing sort of a fast bender series because he's just one of my favorite filmmakers and you know I'm trying to go through like all of roughly chronologically, his body of work, and at least all that's available on Criterion Channel. Um, And so I've been like, you know, watching those random titles. I've been into Jack Hill. And then I've also been watching like, you know, Godzilla versus Kong and random blockbusters that are on HBO. No, I think I think that's the way to go. That's that's definitely the way to go. And I, I couldn't think of a better couldn't think of a better director to, you know, work, work, 
work one's way through than than Fassbender right now. I mean, just just the sheer life in his films. And there was one particular work by him that you've been watching that I really wanted to hear your thoughts about. Also, you know, has to be said, one of the great titles uh, of all time, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, which I guess originally was, I mean, broadcast on, on German television, which is also, yeah, to be watching German television in the 70s and Fassbender is his stuff is just on TV. That's that's kind of a world I uh, wouldn't mind living in. Yes, exactly. Though I read that it wasn't a set, like particularly well received um, when it originally was broadcast on German television, but I don't know the details of like why it was not just completely beloved. And, you know, for those reasons, it has not been that widely available for, for many years. Um, but, you know, it was kind of recently came back into view um, I think with like the Criterion release, was it? Yeah, I mean, there might have been there might have been like a foreign DVD release of it before. I want to say maybe Arrow uh, had DVDs of it. Yeah, as you said, it's it was a hard thing to see, and one of my like programming holy grails way back when when we were doing uh, overdue was to show uh, eight hours not a day, and I was in corresponding with Fassbender Foundation about. The possibilities of that and they kind of mysteriously said that they were working on maybe a restoration or just some new edition i was glad to see it come to pass um and we did eventually have a fassbender series which was a great pleasure but anyway what did you think about eight hours don't make don't make a day which i have in my notes as eight hours not equal sign a day <laughs> yes um oh my god well i mean like i said before i just like absolutely love Fassbender, his, you know, blend of melodrama and humor and just like, you know, his, his visual style is so delectable. And um, I, I really love the fact that, you know, he has this rotating band of, of players and actors that, you know, kind of, they comprise sort of a through line throughout his entire chronology, which is so interesting. Um, but, you know, with eight hours, don't make a day. Oh, God. It was, it's like the sort of thing that had me weeping, like within 20 minutes of watching it. Um, I finished it this week. Like I started it on Sunday and then I finished it like on Wednesday or Thursday or something. Um, It's, you know, five episodes. Each one is roughly like an hour and 30 minutes. Um, And as the opening credits say, it's a family series. And so it, uh, you know, its main characters are, you know, a, a young guy, a young sort of worker. He like works in this tool factory and his relationship to his girlfriend. And, you know, then it kind of branches out to sort of explore the various interrelationships of, you know, his family and, you know, the way each member, you know, how they relate to each other. And, you know, it's it's this just beautiful, almost humanistic, just family drama on one level that, you know, you know, that it's just like extremely pleasurable. I mean, these characters are so complex and lovable and it's like the, exactly the sort of thing that like, I don't know, that, that I would want to see out of just like a domestic series drama, the type they always, you know, tell me to watch on like HBO or, or whatever. But, you know, when I eventually do, I'm just like, oh, this sucks. Now, this is the kind of thing and television, quote unquote, that, <laughs> um, 
was so rewarding and and lovely and also like deeply intelligent. I mean, you know, the title kind of reveals this eight hours don't make a day. It's, you know, and on the one hand, it is very kind of didactic, um, you know, about labor rights and, and, you know, collective struggle. And of course, you know, no one hates bourgeois norms like Fassbender hates bourgeois norms. Um, so there's <laughs> definitely that element, you know, incorporated in it, but these characters still find, you know, daily joy and pleasure in their relationships, like despite sort of the norms that are kind of weighing upon them and, you know, preventing them from uh, easily finding happiness. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to really get into like the details of each dynamic and, and character, but something I was thinking while watching it is, you know, originally, you know, the, the main character, Jochen, I, got, I forget the actor's name, but he's, you know, he beyond this, he's been known for kind of playing villainous figures because he looks very like Frankenstein-like. Um, he's like this mm. tall lumbering figure with like really heavy brows. And uh, he looks, you know, sort of monstrous from like a certain light, but he's kind of like, he's the main character and he's very cool and, and like open-minded and, and lovely. And like, I found myself just kind of falling for him despite you know, the, his unconventional attractiveness and my initial impression of him, which, you know, just had me thinking about Fassbender's actors and like just how interesting their faces are and like how in the process of watching his films, you know, it's like they become more beautiful just from you getting to know them better. And it's just mm. so disappointing because, you know, to paraphrase Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard, like today, like where are all the interesting faces? Um, and, right. you know, eight hours don't make a day. It's just like everyone by the end of it is just so beautiful and rich, even if, you know, they're not in the conventional sense. It's like the film actually brings that out of them, which is very lovely. Yeah, no, that's that's a really beautiful way of, of putting it. Yeah, as, you know, as you sort of get to know them and, and, and in a way like, yeah, live with them and spend time with them. And he is such a such a striking actor. Uh, Gottfried John, or I guess maybe it's Gottfried Jan, if it's German, I don't know, Jon. For some reason, I, I kind of thought, I don't know. I thought of Adam Driver just a little in terms of just the way his his just sort of stature uh, and face kind of comes at you. I don't know if that makes sense as a comparison. Yeah, no, you're right because Adam Driver. It's funny because he's such a sex symbol these days, but at the same time, he's like is not a pretty boy at all. He's got very strange features, um, which is what you know. I think think he's a pretty big exception to the sort of bland, pretty faces of, of most actors these days. Actually, I don't, it reminds me a little bit of a, a piece Nick Pinkerton wrote also about actors from working class backgrounds and how that was more often a pool for acting, basically, to, to draw on. Um, and Adam Driver, I guess, fitting into that as well. Um, one other thing about uh, Eight Hours uh, Don't Make a Day is, you know, as you said, a little like the dynamics 
uh, between all of these actors. And, you know, for example, in the first episode where Jochen is just having a drink at a bar, it's just such a open sort of plain conversation about kind of what you want out of life. And it's, it's just a scene that I can't even believe it's, it's, it's happening and it's working as it's happening as I watch it because it seems, seems so utterly simple, simple and fundamental. And yet, you know, I mean, any number of playwrights, filmmakers, screenwriters would kill for something like that to actually work on screen. And for me, that's always been part of the magic of Fassbinder is having people speak in this very direct and plain way that uh, is just also just deeply uh, emotional and but doesn't sound stilted or um, on the nose. You know, it's like, on the one hand, his dialogue is not like super realistic, naturalistic style dialogue, but it's also not stilted. And yet it also kind of advances his like political views and like sort of his didacticism in a way that's not um, like oppressive and on the nose. It's like somewhere in between. It's, it's really quite masterful. I, I don't know how he does it. Yeah. It's a sort of show a lot of shows by tr- have tried to be over the decades, I think, um, and very infrequently have succeeded. And in some cases have succeeded in strange places like sitcoms even. I guess someone could make a case of some comparison in a ty- entirely different mode with like Cheers or something. But other attempts at like a serial TV drama along these lines don't always age well, whereas this doesn't feel like it ages a day because you're just right there with them no yeah no i i agree it's it kind of makes me sad because you know when the fifth episode ended which is the last episode i was like man i could i could continue watching this um which is like of course the sort of binge impulse of of these days but you know I'm, i'm glad in a sense that it also doesn't continue that it's sort of contained uh, within the five episodes, um, though, I my my next venture is uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz, and I know that's much longer. So I guess I'll have my my long Fassbender series adventure soon enough. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, we can we can talk about that uh, a few months from now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I still have this doorstop copy of of the book. Oh my god! I um I read like half of it, and then. It was, it's just like a difficult read. It's, it's very dense. It's, um, you know, obvious it shifts just like styles and point of views. It's like one of those books that you need to be like super concentrated and like achieve that level where you're finally on its very kind of elliptical wavelength, you know, the sort of thing that kind of exhausts you after like you read it for an hour. (laughs) Um, so, well, that's, um, yeah, that's eight hours. Don't make a day, and I, I'm I'm sure you'll um, end up writing about that. So I, we have that to look forward to. But uh, yeah, as we started out, you were talking about the variety of what you've been watching. Uh, I don't know. We could make an extreme jump here to we have we have a couple options here. It's like choose your own adventure. Do we go to the entertainment industrial complex, or do we go the way of a actually a particular type of star that I. I don't know really exists anymore. Which do you choose? <laughs> uh, let's talk about Dirk Bogart for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's the saner choice um, at this stage. Yeah, 
So yeah, so I guess there's a Dirk Bogard series on Criterion, and he was kind of a staple uh, at film form as well. Which one jumped out to you of the the Bogard, Bogardiana? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I've always kind of been a big Dirk Bogard fan. I think he's such a fascinating actor. It's like, you know, he has this pretty boy quality to him, but it also is sort of shrouded in this sort of like a perverse quality almost like a antsy um, like outsider quality like despite the fact that he's very you know conventionally attractive so I mean I've always loved him um, in part because uh, The Night Porter and Death in Venice are you know just two of my favorite movies and both of those are on the Criterion series Bogart is so interesting because, you know, his life just in general was very interesting. And, you know, if anyone is curious, he does have like extensive memoirs and like a book of letters that he's like written to various people in the industry. And, you know, there's also the great possibility that he was gay, of course. And, you know, he never took a show wife, as they say. Um, And he... I believe, yeah, he fought in like World War II and like has in his memoirs, he has like some pretty brutal, just like writing about like his memories and how like the violence and barbarism of the war like truly changed him and his perspective. So, you know, I think he's a very fascinating figure. And, you know, what's more, you know, he went from being this matinee idol, you know, in the 50s and then you know, in the 60s and and later became sort of this art house sensation. I mean, like, what a transformation. (laughs) Um, Mm, Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I won't go into, like, The Night Porter, Death in Venice, but, you know, both, if, you know, if you haven't seen those movies, you should see them. They're, like, absolute staples and, like, provocative and, like, really compelling ways that, like, I feel like provocation in the movies these days is really on the downhill, um, commercialized, usurped and whatnot. But on the channel, there's, um, there's Joseph Losey's accident and the servant and the servant is like one of Bogart's, I think most interesting roles, but you know, the accident is also really interesting um, and less well known. It is, he's like this university professor And he has this kind of odd relationship with a student. They're like very intimate. There's just like a sort of queer intimacy between them. And, you know, his, this student that he mentors is, has this like beautiful girlfriend who's like kind of a princess or something. And, you know, this girlfriend is also a student of, of Dirk Bogard's. And so that's sort of like this, um love triangle where like he's inviting them constantly to like dine at his uh, like country estate and you know there's a lot of just like silent erotic moments where you don't know like who is desiring who and like the beginning of the film you know begins with this accident <laughs> where there's a car crash Um, And you see that this couple, you know, the male student and his girlfriend are in this car crash and 
Dirk Bogard appears at the scene of the crime and he, you, you see him kind of helping the girl out of the car. And then, you know, the rest of what happens is kind of revealed um, later in the film. But then like from then on, it sort of jumps back to reveal the nature, the very strange nature of their relationship. Also worth mentioning that this student, the like male student is, oh God, I forgot his name, but he um, plays Basil in, in Austin Powers. And like, as soon as I saw him on screen, I was like, oh my God, that's Basil. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so someone, so someone's a secret Losey fan in the uh, Austin Powers, uh, or, or or a diligent student of the late sixties uh, British <laughs> screen. <laughs> exactly. But yes, accident is quite good. I have actually been watching a lot of Joseph Losey films in like the past few months. I also saw um, La Truite with like Isabel Huppert which is quite good. And then like A Doll's House with Jane Fonda. Anyways, I won't go into those, but like all of those films are so good. Like I would recommend just like going through a lot of his um, more obscure movies and the interesting collaborations that he sees. Because he's worked with so many different types of actors. Yeah. I know. I, I just always felt he's he was always successful at getting, I mean, for lack of a better word, a, a kind of, I don't know, a kind of playwright's sense of in-the-room drama. I, I, I yeah, I remember Accident as being a uniquely kind of queasy watch. I mean, in in a good way, but uh, along the lines of Dirk Bogart, for you know, I the the one movie I I, I see is not on the collection. There uh, is is Modesty Blaze, which <laughs> I I won't make a case for as a as a good movie, but uh, well, I mean that's just a, it's a rather cartoonish kind of spy caper film where he plays a villain, and I don't know, I, I just remember things like one shot is just carefully engineered to show the like ridiculous glass he's he's drinking out of yeah all around a silly movie (laughs) yeah there's so many movies from just like the 60s and 70s that like i've seen that are not particularly good but if they have like the right actors like it's fine i'll just watch it uh but like you know modesty blaze i haven't seen yet but i bought the blu-ray because it's you know of course dirk bogard monica Vitti, terrence stamp and i'm just like well i don't care this is trash this is them in a movie together and it's so i'll, I'll watch it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it is that yeah and then forgot to mention of course another joseph losey directed movie so yeah, another uh, instance of his his range, but yeah, just wish it was it was a bit better. But um, colorful. I'm sure it'll look <laughs> good on on the Blu-ray. I watched it on on just some crappy copy. So, and since I bothered to watch it, I will just mention that I, I guess this was kind of heavily referenced in the little remembered movie CQ uh, by Roman Coppola, uh, which has a character. I don't know. I guess there's an actor in the movie who plays a character called Dragonfly, who is a spy international woman of mystery, who is, I guess, probably based on Modesty Blaze. Anyway, I just had to, you know, sometimes you see something and and, and you just have to uh, exercise it. So that was my um, getting rid of that movie from my head. Anyway. I'll, I'll give a quick shout out to... Um... In the Dark Bogard series, Cast a Dark Shadow, which is 
sort of before Bogard, you know, started working with, you know, Losey and Visconti and, you know, all these European art house directors, um, you know, but it's like from the 50s and he pretty much plays this gold digger, a murderous gold digger who like gets with older women so that, you know, when they eventually pass or when he eventually forces them to pass, he can take their fortunes. And it's this very like just fun noir where like Dirk Bogart is this younger, hotter man who's just like trying, is this wife murderer and and schemer. And it's really quite fun and just like over the top. Yeah, that's a good match for him. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like I'm watching Dirk Bogart's uh, forehead. He acts with his forehead a lot. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that even makes sense. But that, for some reason, just yeah. You mentioned the nervousness. Somehow, I just feel it's uh, held in there a lot. I mean, his eyes, of course. But uh, so yeah. And then victim. Victim is probably on there too, right? Yeah, the Basil Dearden victim. I mean, like I also saw that kind of recently. It's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, in terms of like just the tension and intrigue of it all. But of course, it's also very sad because it's about how obviously gay people were persecuted and like forced into corners where they're blackmailed and, you know, all of the terrible things you can imagine happening under really punitive laws against homosexuality. Yeah, another one, uh, another film worth, just wanted to throw that one in in there. So that's Dirk Bogard. Maybe we can talk about another thread of, of viewing or just a, yeah, what would you call it? Just industrial filmmaking, I guess, just to give people whiplash because you watched both Godzilla versus Kong and the movie that's just known as the Snyder Cut now. <laughs> and I mean, I was curious, let's, I mean, let's take this tack. What led you to, uh, to watch these, <laughs> these movies? <laughs> I don't mean it like <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah no it's, it's very funny because with the Snyder cut I mean I watched it from like a combination of morbid curiosity and like my boyfriend kind of wanted to watch it like he's very skeptical of comic book movies as well but like he'll go watch it just like for fun and at least that's what he says <laughs> um and I actually haven't seen like the original or really many of the Justice League DC movies. So like, I don't know how the Snyder cut is improving upon the original, um, but I trust that the original is somehow worse. That somehow makes sense to me. But <laughs> I also, I guess, was kind of curious because it seemed like there was some interesting writing and and views on on the film um just like online and like with you know different critics reviews of it and you know the main hump was sort of the time (laughs) but you know with this sort of commercial filmmaking you know part of what makes it so nefarious is just like how easy it is to consume and to like just sit there on the couch, like watching things fly across the screen. And then like all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's nighttime. At least that was my experience watching the Snyder Cut. 
which I did actually like watch like two or three parts, but like still it's four hours long. So it's like still a big chunk of my day. Um, so I guess <laughs> to start on it, you know, I'm not going to name names, <laughs> but going back to these reviews about it, you know, there are some things out there that are really elevating it to sort of a kind of masterwork status of the superhero genre. I think I saw some review call it like the set and tango of superhero movies, which is deeply upsetting. Oh my um, God. You know, just, yeah. And like, I mean, maybe you'll figure out who this is, but it's like not an like critic that's, you know, ill respected. Like it's a respected critic, but anyways, <laughs> Um, okay, I will give the Snyder cut this, you know, Zack Snyder does have a distinctive style and he's incredibly earnest, though that self-seriousness is, you know, in part what has made comic book movies so terrible over the years. <laughs> hmm. But, you know, I would, to an extent, like take the Snyder cut over most of the Marvel movies, which to me feels so calibrated by you know whatever corporate entity is pulling the strings to make sure these movies appeal to the widest audience possible um the Snyder Cut is not good but you know there's something to its gratuitousness you know the way it sets up good versus evil in this very Manichaean sense its attempts at melodrama and like this emotional devastation and it was pretty cool that this was in 4-3 uh, which kind of contained the massive action and like created the sense of like contained energy that's like somewhat coherent and not just like shit and colors flying randomly all over the screen um, hmm. but you know the problem for me is that once we grasp that you know this isn't just corporate mush that this is indeed the product of you know a distinct sensibility you know it, it does deserve its possessive you know Zack Snyder's Justice League but you know once we move beyond that it still sucks <laughs> um <laughs> like oh god there are there are some salvageable moments like I was reading someone's letterbox review i think it was john semley's um mm -hmm. kind of like writes for the baffler and like other platforms but he described snyder as having um and like i'm paraphrasing this like gym rat sensibilities that like are so extreme that they eventually like turn on themselves and become sort of campy <laughs> and like i kind mm. of get that like there's a few scenes like in slow motion with like the flash that like involve hot dogs floating around the air and they're like kind of cool and weird. Um, like you're kind of looking at it being like, what is going on? And like that big question mark is kind of fun. And like, you don't get those weird question marks in like Marvel movies. Like everything is like calculated. Um, right. But, you know, for every weird, interesting moment there's just like you know a 30 minute stretch of super ugly gray visuals and like ben affleck grunting and just like 
utter nonsense. And it's like, admittedly, it is was really hard to look at. Like, it's so dark. The color palette is so dark. And I know that's where all movies are headed to these days. Like, just like, you know, seeming more severe through like this gray, muted color palette. And like, that's supposed to, that like, you know, being supposed to impart profundity in some sense or like seriousness. But it's just like so hard to look at. Like, I actually found myself squinting through so much of it. And yet I finished it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> glad you made it out alive. I, I also just want to say, like, yeah, I mean, I applaud just watching it, as always, just to, so you have something you can say. You point to it, and you there's something you actually have to analyze. That's, I guess, one over me, who is just, I just, I just can't. And I, I mean, I have watched others of these movies before, and it seems like, yeah, you've, you've confirmed, you've bravely confirmed what I, what I feared or suspected and and the brightness thing is so strange to me as well because for a while i just thought that you know that everything was going to be really brightly lit because that was just like you know the kind of floodlight approach to blockbuster filmmaking that yeah not not to scare anyone off with any ambiguity of mood that might be reflected by an actual use of lighting uh as opposed to like screwing around with things in in post-production or something well Thank you for that report from the front lines of the, the comic book epic. My my gift for watching it is that I am able to have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, I, yeah. So the other reason that just came to mind to ask you about the Snyder Cut is is another blockbuster Godzilla Kong uh, matchup, which really we do not uh, <laughs> we do not have to get into. I just wanted to flag that. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. So, you know, I gave you my reasons for why I watched the Snyder Cut. But my reasons for watching Kong versus Godzilla or like whatever order it is, um, (laughs) you know, I saw online that people were praising it for being just like this spectacle that doesn't care about the humans or the plot. Like it's just monsters going at each other. And I was like, okay, so it maybe knows how to be just like trashy pleasure and like maybe like just maybe the action is you know well choreographed and executed and like in my mind like I'm a big fan of well executed action vehicles even if they're like dumb and have stupid dialogue and like no character development like I really love like Paul W.S. Anderson and like like I thought Mm -hmm. Monster Hunter was great and I was like okay Godzilla versus Kong like maybe it's sort of like could be like maybe Monster Hunter, you know, that sort of fun spectacle. And so I was like, okay, we'll watch this. And I did. And it wasn't that at all. <laughs> it was, you know, I, there was so much chatter on the timeline about how it was just this big, fun, dumb vehicle but like it doesn't straightforwardly give you the goods at all it's just you know it's just like any other like shitty big cgi infested blockbuster and like the action was so poorly directed there was a lot of just like mindless filler subplots like i don't think that they fought until like 45 minutes into the movie like i don't think that there was more than 20 minutes of godzilla fighting kong And like, (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm 
here for in a sense. Um, right. So it was like really disappointing. Like you can't even do trash. Right. So anyways, I just think it's so bizarre that I don't know that like somehow this is getting like positive feedback in any sense, because like, it's not even dumb fun. It's like pretty boring. So anyway, this is all just like a testament, I think, to how lowered our standards have gotten in terms of studio tentpoles. Yeah, couldn't say it better. I think you're exactly right with that. And 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 just, you know, how honed the kind of feedback mechanism of like the marketing has become, it's not a good situation. <laughs> the panic that it instills in me when I look at one of those release calendars for, I don't know, let's for Disney or something that goes out for like 10 years and it's all just permutations of, of different franchises. Uh, I mean, it just, I just find that kind of chilling. <laughs> just, um, oh my God. Yes. It is very scary. Like when the Disney Marvel or whatever the fuck reveals their lineup, like at Comic-Con or whatever, and it's like one after the other, after the other, it's like very chilling. <laughs> it is. I mean, at least there could be the pretense that there was some, you know, still some surprise or, or uh, you know, I don't know, <laughs> some sort of uh, creative direction uh, where they might do something different. I, I don't know. There, there might be a new uh, some movie that is not based upon a prior uh, prior thing. Um and, you know, all that said, I, I go into it like, you know, like it sounds like you went into that one, any of these movies that I do find myself watching, which is, you know, I, I want to be there for what I, I hope is going to happen, which is, yeah, just, <laughs> you know, hopefully the maximum number of minutes of two enormous, uh, you know, of, of, a, of a giant lizard and, and, and giant ape wreaking havoc on, on, on each other and the surrounding environment. I don't know if you watched it, but I couldn't resist watching the little um, times the director walks through a scene thing, anatomy of a scene. I had to watch it for for Gorilla and Kong. And he was pretty open about the fact about, he says, like, the thing about these movies, you have to do all this boring exposition, you know, and I don't like that. But then you at least get to make the monsters, you know, uh, fight each other. Um, But yeah, I guess they could have fought each other more. Yeah, that's funny. Just like, you really don't have to do that much boring exposition. I mean, not to sing the praises of Monster Hunter again, but that thing gets right to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't need to uh, we uh, we can we can leave it at, leave it at that. We can leave the the uh, monster carcasses uh, on on the on the field. But I do just as a coda to this, I watched the vigilante thriller Nobody a Universal Studio release. It was kind of marketed as a, you know, underdog revenge thriller with with a little, some sort of mystery in it. Pretty soon, you know, it's revealed in the movie that the main character, uh, played by Bob Audenkirk, is a undercover, you know, some sort of special ops kind of cleanup agent that everyone fears, anyone who actually knows who he is, but he just presents as a guy who works at this, auto body shop and basically it's a movie i was i was watching and you know there are these kind of very elaborate uh hand-to-hand combat sequences one kind of centerpiece is on a bus where he he takes on five like russian gangsters with various uh various weapons 
Um, but I, I just sort of thought, like, you know, this is just this sort of just feels sort of like has a John Wick feel to it. And then sure enough, it was actually uh, written by the guy who wrote the John Wick series. Um, and then pretty, pretty quickly reveals itself as just I, I felt having no <clears throat> no real heart to it um, and, and almost eerily so uh, by the end. It just got really workmanlike churning through these uh, really aggressive action scenes, really in a kind of mechanical way, playing up that this is a guy who has to prove his masculinity and it, it just didn't really didn't really succeed on that level. I mean, you know, some good fight scenes, but I think the John Wick movies, which I'm not some sort of apologist for, I enjoy the, the kind of comic book aspect of those, but, and this one had a little as well, but nobody, not, not a high recommendation for me. But I thought I'd throw it in there in the interest of just, you know, putting a little uh, punctuation point on on those. Just brief comment on this. Like, I had no idea until you had, like, emailed me about Nobody that that movie even existed, <laughs> which kind of feeds into my general, I don't know. It's, like, so hard to keep track of new releases. Um, it's, like unless it's something released by like the major streamers like HBO or Netflix that like throws it at you as soon as you like log on to it, then it's just like they are dominating what we perceive as the new release these days. And, you know, I know that there are so many more, um, but it's, it's so hard to keep track of them and then know what's even out there, um, especially since a lot of it I'm sure is, much better than the stuff being like super promoted. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that, yeah, that's why I mentioned the marketing for, you know, a Marvel film or any film like that. It's just such a saturation approach. Its existence becomes an event. That's, I guess, the event movie approach, which is just saturating people until they would feel weird. Uh, I don't know, the average person might feel weird if they were not talking about a movie <laughs> uh, or, or seeing it or left out in some way. It's creating that. And that's just uh, a pretty awful, <laughs> pretty awful approach to culture, the kind of uh, compulsory uh, FOMO, you know, approach, uh, especially when the, when the product itself is not uh, especially, you know, entertaining. But anyway, I'm sorry I brought this into this sacred space of um, home viewing. <laughs> But uh, they they started it, you know, dropping all those movies on on uh, for for home viewing the, the Warner Company. But anyway, yes, I, I promise next time I get on here, we will avoid all commercial tentpoles just to cleanse cleanse our palates <laughs> in terms of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's it's my fault. The curiosity, I just I had to hear I had to hear about it and. Uh, it's, I, you know, we're also just acknowledging that the flames uh, just outside the window, I guess, is one way of thinking about it. But uh, maybe we can finish uh, with a guaranteed uh, pleasure, uh, I would think. Um, and that's the comedies of Albert Brooks, specifically two, uh, since I think those are the ones that we've seen most recently. Defending Your Life has a very nice Criterion edition, which I mentioned just because it also, I mean, just has a great interview with, uh, with Albert Brooks on it. And, you know, in case anyone doesn't remember, this is, you know, where Albert Brooks 
goes to some sort of limbo heaven uh, after dying and as it's all in the title there so it's a kind of vision of of the after of the afterlife but more just a reckoning with who you are as an individual and you know his love interest is meryl streep who is this perfect ethereal completely at ease uh woman that she meets there i was just reading ari aster's uh, essay about it which i didn't even know about i just discovered where he says like probably the best thing going for the albert brooks's character in terms of the decisions he's made in life is that he is choosing to be with uh, the meryl streep character which i thought was kind of a sweet observation uh um but yeah it is just it is a movie that sounds so high concept and then coming out as it did in the early 90s, you know, you could go into it just thinking, you know, is this just going to be like an overly schematic thing? You know, what kind of easy jokes is he going to go for? I mean, of course, it's not the case. If, you know, if you've seen any Albert Brooks movie, you know, that's that's not what's going to happen. Just as, you know, Lost in America is not going to be some typical 80s road movie. And yeah, there are plenty of things in here. And the interview with Albert Brooks is great because you realize how carefully he cast it as well. For example, you know, everybody always mentions, rightfully so, Rip Torn as his, and his attorney exactly, but <laughs> his like defender uh, in presenting his case for what should happen to him after, after this limbo he's in. And because uh, there's this whole like community, it's almost like a, a convention or something where people are all shuttled through before they go on to the next phase and they have to review their life on screen um which i mean as always just like <laughs> getting right at the just a very basic anxiety which is <laughs> if you had to watch a movie of all the parts in your life where you've made the wrong decision or screwed up or something or had terrible luck i mean <laughs> it's just like uh, sort of agonizing and of course he steers right directly into that um, and it's and it's very funny, um, you know, uh, including like just sort of classrooms stuff. A wonderful movie. And, and yeah, casting Rip Torn, Stroke of Genius. Uh, and of course, that immediately led into the Larry Sanders show uh, happening, I guess, uh, at least happening for, for Rip Torn. I mean, being cast as the producer on that show, Gary Shandling's producer. Um, so I immediately fell into that. Robert Holm, we've just been watching an episode of each every day to one of those situations of trying to make something last as long as, long as he can. Larry Sanders. Uh, I've often thought of the, I'm going to sound ridiculous, but the F Scott Fitzgerald line about, uh, is it personality or something being an unbroken series of perfect gestures? That's how I feel about the Larry Sanders show. Um, but yeah, so defending your life, I would, I would, I would heartily recommend. Um, if you remembered it, anyone has remembered it as being, yeah, as as I said, somewhat of a standard comedy or or too, you know, on the nose in its premise. Um, I would very much say watch it, watch it, and see. Um, but by by coincidence, yeah. it sounds like you also watched an Albert Brooks movie. Uh, which one was that? Yeah. Well, it wasn't that recently, but um, I saw Modern Romance like a few months ago for the first time. And, you know, I'd seen Defending Your Life, but, you know, when I was much younger. So, like, that's actually something that I do want to revisit. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Modern Romance is so great. It's, like, pretty much like a takedown of, like, romantic comedies, um, which I guess he tends to do. But, you know, it's about 
you know, Albert Brooks, he's like this film editor. He's like cutting this new film and he's into this relationship that he kind of uh, just ends in the beginning. And so then throughout the film, he's like wavering between whether he actually wants to get back with this girlfriend and like trying to date other people. And, you know, by the end, he, he gets back together with her and like proposes to her. And it's actually like a horror movie in that sense, because you know, they like should not be together. Like it's actually just like such a subversion of the happy ending. And Albert Brooks is, you know, just so funny. <laughs> He's so, I don't know, like the way that he portrays like neuroses and, and jealousy and like instability in an individual is so like engrossing, but like also relatable even though, you know, you watch him in, in modern romance and he's like such an asshole, <laughs> but, you know, there's a truth to it. Um, and the anxieties and, and insecurities he displays um, and the narcissism. So, I mean, that was so great because um, it elicited such mixed emotions, but like good mixed emotions, you know, just like disappointment and horror. But then I was also just like, you know, laughing myself silly because of just like how absurd so many of the situations he gets himself in are. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's never a wrong time to watch an Albert Brooks movie, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, definitely true. He, you know, portrays or just embodies these, these neuroses without taking this, the sting out, out of it. It doesn't, and I never feel like his his one-liners are, are are kind of letting you off the hook in a way, or, or like, um, I mean, I hate to make the comparison, but uh, I mean, just to think of like, say, the Woody Allen model of of neurosis, um, so, uh, very much uh, just kind of self-extinguishing in a way, because his one-liners are so in these kind of um, routines, you know. Um, so like, there's a very clear character and at the same time there's almost no one there in a way um so it's it's a kind of approach to neurosis you know it's it's all kind of a jokey routine a, a kind of performance in a way um but with Albert Brooks I mean I'd have to say he's he's actually like a good actor <laughs> um it's like a finely tuned instrument it's really hard to I just think of like moving through scenes and 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 their development and the sequence and and tuning it just just right. I mean, the timing is just kind of incredible. And you get that. I mean, in defending your life, when he's sitting there with either like uh, Rip Torn, uh, and in some scenes, I would say Meryl Streep. The yeah, just his sense of of, of this timing, um, and uh, it's you know, <laughs> there there are there are scenes that could just. Well, just thinking of like Lost in America, the famous scene with Gary Marshall running the, the casino where he's asking for a refund, basically, <laughs> after losing money. Um, they're both just masters of crafting a comic scene. But I mean, it's it just works on so many levels and um, is not like a throwaway gag. And that's also, I guess, how he cuts his his scenes. You know, it's not he can cut things on the kind of ridiculous one-off thing that someone has said, but he's not always doing that. So yeah, um, no, I, I, I should, I should watch modern romance again. And then always funny to think that he's there in uh, taxi driver 
uh, as the the kind of nebishi coworker of oh, Sybil yeah. Shepherd who's trying to get her attention, <laughs> which is it's just kind of funny to see him plopped into that world. Yeah, watching an Albert Brooks movie really just reminds me how much I miss just mid-budget comedies and just like the simplicity of having just a simple focus and and just interesting characters and good writing like very simple <laughs> don't get that nowadays not to bemoan the uh, route of the industry again but definitely makes me long for that sort of you know simple just human romantic comedy uh in a, a very like simple form oh yeah i mean i i totally agree with that and yeah and then that sometimes i just and i just want to <laughs> just completely escape and uh you know that's that's how i find myself s- starting uh the lady eve uh at midnight which is what happened to me um a couple a couple weeks ago probably not the kind of movie you're talking about but sometimes i just flee entirely into in, in, into that um but yeah no, sometimes I, no, I, I feel like, I don't know, sometimes you just need something to like suck you in and, you know, like something like <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong. Like I wasn't even paying attention at the time because I kept getting distracted because it was just kind of boring and, and lame and like supposed to be spectacular. And, you know, I feel like so many different types of movies can just like, I don't know. I guess just suck you in on their own wavelength because, you know, you're talking about watching The Lady Eve at midnight and, um, you know, I kind of did something similar like a few weeks ago. I like put on Ali Fear Eats the Soul as part of my Fassbender series at like one in the morning and I just was like completely awake throughout the whole thing. Like, and usually, I mean, I kind of go to bed around that time. So I was just like, completely riveted and like engrossed by the emotions and just like crying and you know it's a very different type of escapism but um nonetheless very effective yeah no i mean that's that's <laughs> that's all any of us could could ask for is, is <laughs> i guess too much to ask for a movie that that draws you in like that but oh god yeah ali fearance is all just absolutely riveting um well, all right. We'll we'll end with that, with the hope for and the the hope and the search for more movies like that. Thank you, Beatrice, as always, for taking the the time and let me know how it goes with Berlin uh, Alexander plots. Yes, I'll let you know when I get to it. I'm going pretty fast, so so who knows? Maybe it'll be sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Thanks again, and uh, we'll sign off here. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>